Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going well, thank you Ed. I am just kind of astounded at how much has happened in the brief intermission we've had, so looking forward to getting stuck in. How are you? Yes, I'm good. I am weighed down by many meats. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ed showed me, for the benefit of the listener, a photo of the platter that he and his parents uh, did a good first go at. Is that mm. right, Ed? Seeming as you've each of you have parted with quite a significant. It, all I'm, it's a lot of meat. I don't know how else to describe it. I'd love to do better in my alt text here, but it's it's a <laughs> mighty, mighty platter of meat. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's. I guess if it wasn't a Puerto Rican restaurant we went to, that's probably what they could have called it. Um, if it was an Irish bar. Uh, <laughs> it was... Yes, uh, we went out. My dad had seen uh, this restaurant recommended. Uh, somehow like it, somehow it had cropped up on the internet, on his internet um, searches. And he'd been saying, oh, this looks like really cool. We should go there. And so they drove down drove over there to where it's based in Kissimmee, which is about a 40 minute drive away and got there. And they, we just basically went for their standard platter, which is like chicken, bits of chicken, three different kinds of sausages, two different parts of the, of, of pig meat, belly pork, and uh, another one and ribs. Uh, and then, you know, a side, which we got um, rice and beans. And it was just, it was really delicious, but it was just like when it was all like carried out to us, it was such a mass of 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 flesh. Uh, it was it was quite something, and it was very very delicious. It was a lovely meal, but yeah, it was just so there's so much meat that I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. Even though like I think it was like forty five dollars or something, and it really just felt like too much meat even for that amount. <laughs> it was like very reasonable price to just be given several barnyard animals on a plate. But yes, I am quite full <laughs> as a. <laughs> As a result of that, but um, no, it's been quite nice. And yeah, like you say, it's been a few weeks since uh, we last recorded, so uh, we've got a lot of news to rattle to. But also, I think uh, something that you and I thought it'd be worth mentioning, because uh, obviously a lot of people have been talking about it, is that this weekend, the weekend we're recording, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the 9-11 attacks in New York and Washington. And, you know, as... I would say probably the seminal events of our lifetime, like in terms of just how they've reshaped American politics, world politics, just like so much of everyday life. Uh, it would be worth taking a moment to kind of like reflect on them and, you know, where where were we uh, uh, in our lives, lives when they happened? So, so Emily, where were you on uh, September the 11th of 2001? I think it was my third day of secondary school. Mm-hmm. It was early in the school year and it was my first year at big school and you couldn't really have more of an event to say welcome to the adult world that childhood mm-hmm. is done. Mm-hmm. And then how things progressed over the next couple of years and war in Iraq and invasion starting and 
it's still really bizarre to me and now as an adult kind of understanding it in a completely different way I'm tracking it through media um which obviously mm. we'll come to um in a second but where were you Ed? I was also at school it was early on in the term uh I was I just turned 15 uh so this was start of GCSEs yeah um yeah first year of GCSEs and the thing that I always remember about that day, and this is something that I think is just kind of like reflected in thinking back on it and thinking, God, how different the world was then, is that I didn't find out about it until I got off the bus from school. Because obviously in the UK, the attacks started sort of around just before 2pm. And like there wasn't... You know, not everyone had a mobile in 2001. Yeah. And you certainly didn't have, like, ready access to the internet unless you happened to be on a physical computer at that time. So there wasn't, like, a way for everyone to suddenly know. And I don't even think my school had, like, a PA system or anything. So even if they had wanted to kind of make an announcement and just kind of, like, let people know that something majorly huge was happening in the world, there wasn't any way to let us know. So... You know, I was in a history class or something and then got on a bus, you know, took 45 minutes or 50 minutes to drive home, walked, uh, you know, around the back of the pub that my my family ran. And then the door like flew open. My dad was there. He just shouted, terrorists have attacked America. And I was just like bamboozled by it. it's just yeah. like what does that mean <laughs> like yeah. what the hell are you talking about and then going upstairs and then seeing the footage on the tv because like the news had been on for the last couple of hours and just then just kind of like trying to make sense of it all and and just kind of like being glued to it all and then you know the next day having to go back to school <laughs> and everyone just trying to make sense of it and that I think for me more than anything else is is what I think of is just the ways in which technology now is so different in how we process and receive news like there would not be that sort of a delay of a major thing happening and then it being depending on someone actually telling you because I can't remember exactly when 24-hour news channels began, but that was definitely mm-hmm. something that I remember being one of the first rolling news stories that you couldn't move from. Like, it was on yeah. every channel in the UK, even, and that was a big deal. I had no idea what the Twin Towers were. And mm-hmm. I remember in our own sort of little childlike brain ways being like, oh, well, Lord of the Rings is the biggest thing to happen to us. Does that mean they're not going to make the two towers? Because that name is too in alignment. And given that, you know, they photoshopped the peace sign out of uh, Amanda Bynes, I think it's what a girl wants uh, to make sure that, you know, because you can't take the American flag off of her tank top, but you also can't be seen to be sort of like making a stance against uh, uh, W on a young adult film poster um so not you know beyond the realms of possibility but yeah that like and thinking back to oh cast your mind back to the uh insurrection and how immediate that was like something on twitter and then turning over and there's the rolling coverage and things on twitter and twitter and twitter but you're so right like the technology is vastly different and in terms of media i was thinking having just recently rewatched the matrix myself 
um, and then having a little bit of a dip into watching some more of Arrested Development over this weekend. And I thought, wow, within the space of a couple of days, I can sense how media is completely different. Like, mm. in 99, I don't think you would see that level of destruction of, like, big buildings in a city um, mm. without some, you know, that's th certainly taking such a subversive stance because <laughs> what what Neo and Trinity do is essentially a terrorist attack, right, <laughs> against, the, yeah. against the order, but it's an inside job and yada, yada, yada. It's amazing even after, you know, the Unabomber and things that that was still kind of allowed, but they are, they're very white, so it's probably okay. Anyway, I'm, I'm being <laughs> facetious again. Bad me. But then watching Arrested Development now, how some bits have aged horribly. Like I didn't realise quite how transphobic it was when I first watched mm. it and, and lots of other really kind of uncomfortable things. But what I also noticed is that it's the... Because it was what... It started in 2003 and to me... It's the first, well, comedy, but even just non-current affairs programme that completely ran with the national consciousness. Like, mm -hmm. because it's that thing when you're swimming through it, you don't notice <laughs> that it's all around you. And then when you look back, you think, oh, yeah, this is so pronounced to me now because this was the beginning of the... Um, you know, the, the wake that was left in terms of, you know, the war on terror. And now I'm like, what even is the war on anymore? I think extensively that it is the pain that is coming from the injustice that is happening in Afghanistan. And as, you know, a feminist and a human being, it horrifies me that this seems to be this at the beginning and the end of these, or not even the end of these chapters, like the start of a whole new horrible horrible conflict and i still don't even understand how they all managed to get woven in together you know because mm. i remember at the time just hearing like oh well now it's bin laden iraq afghanistan and also bundled into one because of course we are kept in in the dark in the west as to what it you know our ignorance benefits uh those who are going against awesome sorry wrong wrong podcast i was talking about arrested <laughs> development ed i swear sorry yeah, I think uh, Arrested Development as well. I, I noticed that at the time, but like, like you say, in, in rewatching, I think it becomes more pronounced. Like, it felt like one of the few shows that was really kind of leaning very hard into making fun of the entire kind of like approach to the war on terror and the general kind of like vibe in the country, like the aggressively pro war stance the cracking down on freedom of speech that you see when uh you know like Lindsay gets put into the free speech zone it's just like a cage um you know like it, that felt like one of the few like big mainstream shows that was willing to poke fun at it in a way that kind of felt really funny but also like somewhat substantive i think one of the i don't know one of the failings i've always that has always galled me a little bit about the simpsons from that era mm. is that they wouldn't make fun of George W. Bush, like they didn't, I don't think they depicted him at any point. Yeah, yeah. Clinton was like, showed up all the time. <laughs> Clinton and Bush, and, or showed up in the, uh, you know, Bush one, showed up in The Simpsons like fairly frequently. And then I don't think they ever did Bush two. And I think that that was always seemed like a failing. They always kind of felt a little bit 
cowed by it and as such you know the, there's not a huge amount of really substantive political satire in like the post 2001 simpsons which i think you know there were there were other problems with the simpsons around about time but that always felt like they kind of kept that arrow in their quiver in a way that you know tie uh, you know kind of like prevented them from being as potentially good or incisive as they had been during the previous like 12 years Mm, absolutely i think that is a turning point for them as well where they start to retreat a bit and there's certainly not counterculture anymore and it's understandable in the wake of such horror and the animation does take a lot longer Mm. than, than various other kinds of like satire and that was almost sort of i think a turn for American late night as well yeah. um, where it started to become more of a or at least comedy central like the daily show I think really kicked off post 9-11 because a lot of people were angry and betrayed and traumatized and they weren't necessarily seeing themselves in the jingoist patriotism Mm, yeah. um, and I think what John Stewart has continued to do for first responders is phenomenal. Now, he certainly hasn't forgotten. We can say, you know, may we never forget, but it's like, well, will you actually remember and look after people? So kudos to John Stewart for that. Yeah, I think as well, I think that was one of the first things I remember because obviously like John Stewart wasn't necessarily someone who had really permeated over in the UK. Like at the most, if you had asked me who John Stewart was, prior to 2001 mm. i'd have probably been like the science teacher from the faculty like that's all i knew him from oh God, um yeah. but uh in post 2001 particularly like you know there was the episode that they did the first episode they did after the attacks where he's like on the verge of tears for the entirety of it and uh has like a really lovely uh little monologue at the end where he talks about you know how he used to be able to see the two towers from his apartment and now he sees the statue of liberty like that was one of the first things i remember like seeing from him where people were like sharing it well not sharing it online like someone would be watching it on a pc in the common room and then say hey you need to come over and watch this so you have to come over and yeah. you'd have to restart the video again because it was a you know a quick time or whatever um and that was like the first time that i think i became aware of who he is and then in the years afterwards obviously the Daily Show and then the Colbert Report became so much more well-known globally, I think, because they were seen to be one of the only ones who were really taking some sort of a some sort of a stand against what Bush was doing in, like, a mainstream context. Mm. And whether or not that was effective or whether or not that was actually true, uh, you know, that's, that's how it was perceived at the time, that, you know, making fun of it on Late No Show was, uh, was important and substantive. Yeah. So uh, we'll go on to the rest of the news for this week. This is going to be an all-news episode because, like I say, it's been a couple of weeks and a lot of things have happened. Uh, so we'll kick off. Uh, you, uh, Emily, mentioned that you had rewatched The Matrix. I also rewatched The Matrix this week because, of course, we got a trailer for the fourth Matrix movie, Matrix Resurrections, uh, directed by uh, Lana Wachowski, uh, working on her own this time because uh, Lily is not involved uh, co-written by David Mitchell not the one you're thinking of <laughs> unless it is the one you're thinking of because <laughs> most Americans don't know <laughs> the other made Mitchell Cloud Atlas um, not Peep Show Cloud Atlas not Peep Show 
Yeah, uh, and also co-written with um, Alexander Hemmen, who wrote on Sense8. So an interesting collection of writers, I think, uh, and that, that certainly has me very hopeful that the film will be uh, pretty weird. Um, but what we got, what we saw in the trailer was, I thought, very, very cool. It looks visually, like, wonderful uh, and vibrant and vivid in a way that uh, it feels very distinctive from the previous movies, particularly the second and third ones, which, like, really went heavy on that green tinge. And what we, little we see of the plot, you know, is uh, Keanu Reeves as Neo, uh, apparently living a life where he has no memory of his experiences in the Matrix, so presumably some sort of afterlife situation whatever you can get in the matrix talking to uh a, a seemingly a pair of psychologists one played by neil patrick harris and one played by jonathan groff who kind of like talked to him about his experiences uh in the matrix or these visions that he's had and uh you know you see him meeting carrie Ann moss who he also has uh, no memory of having met before these are the characters kind of flitting in and out. Uh, you have Yar, Yar Abdul Mateen II playing uh, Morpheus, it seems. I think it's been confirmed that he is playing a new version of Morpheus, uh, which is exciting, if only because it confirms that the events of The Matrix Online are, are canon. Uh, <laughs> because in The Matrix Online, uh, Morpheus was assassinated. <laughs> and, um, that was the last bit of like significant Matrix lore that we got. So uh, I find it very exciting to think that uh, Lana Wachowski and co are kind of like sitting off to the side thinking like, what do we pick and choose from all of the various media properties that the Matrix has encompassed? Um, but yeah, I, I am just, I'm super excited for it. I really have enjoyed seeing what the Wachowskis have gone on to done in the years since the Matrix and... On one level, you kind of think, like, ah, oh, it's a shame that the only way that uh, Lana Wachowski can get a movie made on, like, a huge scale is if she returns to this big IP that she created 20 years ago. But on the basis of what we've seen so far, it seems like what we're going to get out of it is going to be pretty cool, and I have hopes that the final product will be considerably kind of, like, stranger and more intriguing than the trailer suggests, which, like, the trailer is great i've watched it a fair few times but it does feel very straightforward uh, and so like i'm hoping that that's very much kind of a you know entice people in before things really get strange i can't help but be kind of excited i've been burned before but i think there's just something incredible about franchise that has, is spread over so much time that isn't a richard linklater joint um mm. i'm really excited to see what lana comes up with um you know Again, these sort of great filmmaking um, partnerships, like the Coen brothers are kind of going their own ways. The Wachowski sisters are doing the same thing. Like, I think it's really great to see what, you know, what she, what story she wants to tell mm. and what she sees worth telling again in this and the old... It was amnesia. Um, reminds me a bit of that Futurama episode of... Uh, what's the... It's gonna really annoy me. What's the soap in Futurama? It's not. Oh. It's not Days of Our Lives. It's uh, oh, all my circuits. All my circuits. It's a real all my circuits, right? I have amnesia. <laughs> I am, if anything, just really heartened by all the lovely memes of uh, nineteen ninety nine boys in line going to see the Matrix twenty twenty one. Those same girls uh, have their tickets for the Matrix Resurrections. 
because yeah. lots happened and I think that's really important it'll be interesting to see how the matrix itself changes you know having been confirmed as maybe an unconscious transgender allegory but now looking back they're like oh this is both exactly what we were talking about and seeing how that comes through in the latest film I have to keep reminding myself that it's resurrections because I kept calling it refractions the other day and reflections <laughs> and it's like oh no it's something why does it always have to be something beginning with oh okay fine um look I just love Keanu Reeves I'm mm-hmm. so excited to see Carrie Ann Moss again I'm not even sure I even mind if it's going to be particularly good. Like Jupiter Ascending is just wildly entertaining. And, you know, we all love dogs. Uh, Can't (laughs) fault me, Lacuna's there. So yeah, why not? I think the one thing that might kind of bring me back from it a bit is having rewatched the original uh, so recently is how well the cinematography and the action holds up. Like the two of Mm. them particularly together but I'm you know no doubt as as singular filmmakers as well the the pace and the rhythm and the sheer storytelling of action that they have yeah. like I couldn't peel my eyes away from it and it holds up like and I got the same shiver through me thinking from watching it for the first time and realizing how influential it was how hugely influenced it was by John Woo and you know filmmakers in and across Asia um Mm. and how that kind of brought a completely different tone to a lot of um American action going on I'm just blabbering because it like it really took me aback how well it stood up so now I guess I'm just worried that there's going to be a different kind of leaning on CGI because that's the thing that's mm. taken me out of... Admittedly, I haven't seen Speed Racer, and I really need to rectify that. But having watched aforementioned Jupiter Ascending and Cloud Atlas, there's just not quite the same kind of in-camera and light touch of CGI, because that was the thing that was so impressive about The Matrix, was, oh my God, Like, of course you're bending reality there is this uncanniness that's going throughout the whole thing, but that is ultimately tangible, um, which is why it was so effective. Mm. So yeah, mm, 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 I don't know, just straight. We, we can just call it John Wick five, right? <laughs> that's what we're on. <laughs> of all the things the coronavirus have taken from us, the fact that at one point John Wick four and the Matrix four were meant to open on the same day. Yeah. Uh, that would have been that would have been quite a day. Definitely would have been taking that one off work. Oh yeah, <laughs> I would probably be overstimulated, so we'd need to take the second day off work and just be in a darkened room. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, that, last last thing on the Matrix before we move on to other news. But yeah, uh, rewatching it, I I've I've watched the first Matrix like dozens upon dozens of times. It was one of those movies i had on vhs and just like watched constantly because it was just so fucking cool and i what was so nice about watching it is when they get you know when they get to the lobby scene even though i've seen that done so many times i've seen it parodied so many times i've played through it as conquer the sweary squirrel and conquer's bad (laughs) you know like as soon as the like as soon as that bass kicks yeah. in it's just like yes let's go every <laughs> single time it has lost none of its power none of its uh its enjoyment 
and yeah uh i am even if like the sequels like didn't live up to that and i like the sequels i think more than than most um like that first film is so perfect and it's gonna it's kind of got infinite goodwill from me for whatever the uh the Wachowski separately or together want to do with it. So yeah, I am I am pumped to finally see that in uh, December when it comes out, assuming it doesn't get delayed. So we'll go on to other news now. And one of the, I think one of the big stories uh, at the moment is, it's kind of not quite big yet because it hasn't happened, but it increasingly looks like it's going to happen, is there might be a strike from the IATSE, which is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, which is a kind of collection of unions that represents over 150,000 workers in the film and TV industry. They uh, have a contract which gets renewed every three years, uh, expired in July, but got extended on account of the coronavirus and to allow for more discussion between the IAT, the IATSE and um, sort of the producers uh, to try and come to more favourable terms. Uh, basically, you know, there's lots of things that the the IATSE want, but kind of most, the, the kind of like the most kind of like um, basic version is it is that they want better benefits and residuals as it relates to streaming, because uh, streaming shows have been, traditionally been considered under the new media um, category of like uh, pay and residuals, which are, are considerably lower than for traditional media. And their argument now is that streaming has become such a huge deal and become such a huge part of how television and film are made that you can't credibly make the case that it's new media and that people who work in those industries should be making less money as a result considering how many of them do and considering how many of them work incredibly long hours and often will be moving from project to project to project because there's so much work in the streaming world so they want kind of better work-life balance they want better pay um and those are kind of like, you know, there's other things, but that seems to be the main crux of it is, is them saying, you know, this quote-unquote new form of media has been hugely uh, profitable for a lot of big companies. The people who actually make those shows and those movies should see a bigger piece of the pie. Um, the date for reaching an agreement was September the 10th, so it looks increasingly likely that there will be work stoppages in the future which uh, obviously the producers would want to avoid because they're looking at, you know, some sort of return to normalcy uh, as more people get vaccinated and as California has, you know, weathered the pandemic better than a lot of places. So obviously they're able to kind of like maybe start ramping up production and meeting demand uh, in the in the coming months. So it's potentially like a huge deal as... Hollywood and the film and television industry in America more broadly try to get back up and running. It's also um, in terms of just the appalling working conditions, like on the IA stories, so IATSE stories, but the Instagram handle is IA underscore stories account, the anonymously submitted and shared stories are the depressing thing is that they're all just the same they're so horrendous and it's the same again and again and again the idea of a fratter day which is where a friday bleeds into a saturday and people are rarely given sundays off that the working conditions are so poor that some people 
who were having significant um, stress-induced illnesses as soon as they were signed mm. off for the pandemic and unable to work actually got better. It's like, oh, wow, so the biggest threat to you is the way that you're making your living. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we'll see what happens. I think the more of these stories that are shared and told, the better. And there is the UK equivalent called Brit Crew Stories, and so much of it is the same, and it's a lot of the um, below-the-line workers getting absolutely screwed on behalf mm. of producers who are making too too many promises and can't deliver unless it's literally through exploiting uh, the health and sanity of everyone working for them. So it would be interesting to see if there's a strike. I don't know what would happen obviously i think i've made it quite clear where i stand on these matters and i think things should change i don't know how they're able to because it is so rotten um because it's not as specific as for example something like the writers guild strike back in 2007 2008 which was asking for something very specific mm. this is essentially an overhaul of the entire working practices of the industry um, yeah. And I think sometimes it's a little bit like people sort of giddily talk about coming off set and there is a sort of rush of adrenaline of like that you just survived it. And it's almost like that uh, hormone that's meant to be released in people after they've given birth to make them forget childbirth <laughs> and think, oh, maybe I can do it again. Um, <laughs> something along those lines. Um, and to anyone who says, oh, just get another job, try and find another job at the moment. It's really very difficult. And a lot of people do, a lot of people do. And um, their skills and experience and talent and their own dreams are lost. I mean, not to not to make this entirely about me, but I've pretty much left uh, film and telly because of experiences I've had. And a lot of people I know are making the same kind of move because the lack of, uh, I mean, the pandemic, I think, has sharpened things for a lot of people and put things into mm. focus. Because yeah. when you, particularly when you're a freelancer and you're just desperately trying to find the next job and the next job and the next job, you don't realise what a whirlwind you're in because everyone else is in the same boat and that normalises it for you. And it can be very difficult to have any semblance of a life outside of work. So if you think, oh, if I somehow lose work, do I lose my entire life? All this kind of thing. It's um, ugh, it's messy. But I, the more that these stories are shared, the better. And I hope that it leads to a complete overhaul. I don't know how a strike would happen, who would negotiate, what would the demands be? Because there's something similar to the freelance charter that's been kind of going around recently in the UK. But without these things being ratified by law... I don't know what's actually going to make production companies change because they've been getting away with it because they can, because they've engineered it for themselves that way. So I really recommend um, cheering people on and reading the stories and giving them your solidarity because it doesn't, it, <laughs> it takes a lot to actually be able to share these things. People say like, Oh, are you playing the victim? Are you whining? And it's like, no, people have been sitting on these things for a long time and no one should be traumatised at their place of work. Yes, comrades. Sorry, Ed. Please continue. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, just the last thing on this, I guess. 
for me the 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 reason to maybe hope that a strike would lead to something changing or at least some sort of significant change is you know i think back on the right strike in 2007 2008 where the uh solution for the most part was like you know you have the writers that's you have the um the actors come up with their own lines or directors come up with lines and things like that you know you just kind of like substitute the things that writers would do like just to keep things going i was thinking you can't really do that with like building a set no <laughs> or you know you can't uh you know get tom cruise to kind of get up in the rigging and just kind of start messing with the lights i mean he would because let's face it he's insane but um like that's that i think you know the the possibilities for a complete just like grinding to a halt would give hopefully would give the iatse a decent amount of leverage to at least get some concessions and maybe not the complete overhaul that would be needed but you know maybe the first step in trying to create a, a broader change which uh, i think you would hope to see you really would but I still remember it was 2014 when Sarah Jones died and I don't see yeah. other than the people who were responsible for her death going to jail. I still don't see an awful lot changing. The fact that mm. um, KJ Apa, who plays Archie on Riverdale, was driving himself after like 14, 15 hour days and he nearly died in a crash or like was a crash mm. that could have been so much worse. And you just think, wow, you know, the amount of corners that are being cut for what, for what sake of what budget, the number of people who have actually died at the wheel, um, it's it's very rotten. And I do hope that the IATSE can get them for all they can and that the unions step up here as well because it's at the moment it's just been toothless and people have been suffering for years. Um, so it needs to change. Mm, absolutely. Uh, solidarity with uh, anyone who ends up having to go on strike. Absolutely. In other news, uh, it's film festival season. People are gathering in places uh, to watch movies. Um, And uh, Venice uh, has been happening over the last two weeks. And just the other day, we got uh, news of some of the winners, um, most notably probably um, the French abortion drama Happening, won the Golden Lion. Uh, Of course, uh, unfortunately, very uh, apt given all of the news coming out of um, Texas and the horrendous law that's uh, just been put in place there. Netflix had a bumper festival with some of the projects that they have uh, been behind, including uh, Paolo Sorrentino's The Hand of God, which won the Silver Lion. Uh, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog uh, won, I think, won Best Director. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal won uh, writing for her adaptation of The Lost Daughter. Penelope, uh, uh, and then uh, also I think uh, The Hand of God also won Best Actor and then separate from Netflix uh, Penelope Cruz won Best Actress for uh, Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers, his uh, forthcoming new movie uh, and whilst you know the state of the world and whether or not these movies will get wide releases uh, with everything that's going on with the pandemic it's hard not to get excited about the prospect of some of those movies coming out because uh, there's a lot of people whose work I love uh, kind of getting new movies out there that I am excited to hopefully see soon. Yes, I am really excited for The Lost Daughter in particular because I think Mm -hmm. Maggie Gyllenhaal's been such a fascinating 
actor for a long time and then with her work on the juice kind of moving into mm-hmm. executive producer and that she's forged a really fantastic offbeat career for herself like I feel like she's always kind of stuck to her indie roots like she kind of dabbled in Batman and then just I think after she got killed off was like okay fine <laughs> off mm-hmm. I go never again um and that she's kind of moving into the kind of big creative helms of filmmaking is really exciting and it sounds fascinating and just look at that cast I mean whoa I think it was um I think it was Casper Salmon who I absolutely love on Twitter and a couple of other film critics like Guy Lodge and people were kind of talking about and that they were talking about how exciting it is that you know um Titan won at Cannes um and that The Happening um Audrey Diwan's film uh was won first prize and that these are two obviously very different takes on female body autonomy but they couldn't be Mm. more pressure and I'm glad to see that there seems to be a bit of a kick of sort of meaning and experimentation that's coming back through again like it just seems like a really interesting roster of, of films I'm a little bit tired of like this sort of that these aren't seen as festivals in themselves but kind of stepping stones to the Oscars a little bit, Um, particularly in regards to uh, Kristen Stewart's performance as Lady Di in Spencer, um, which, you know, I still want to see just off the back of that little drop of the accent at the end of the trailer. But yeah, and I mean, I like, (laughs) it's sort of, do I like, I'm, I'm just sort of askance at the fact that I haven't really heard anything about The Last Duel other than it's Ben and Jen's first um red carpet appearance in a while and i remember seeing twitter the other day that was like a new matrix film is coming out ben and jen are on the red carpet wait no wait what it's 2021 <laughs> and it's just nice to see that everyone's been dealing with the pandemic in different ways ed mm. yeah i think the only thing i've seen about the last year was basically someone saying jodie comb is fantastic in it oh, which yeah. uh, unsurprising but uh, yeah uh, that that's at least a reason to maybe watch it, but I've not seen anything else. Which you know, take take that for what you will. I mean, of course, Adam Driver's in it because yeah. he's in everything at the moment, and I'm not I'm not against that. Um, I think I'm just I'm excited about these films, but I still haven't watched Annette yet, Ed. So I really need to. I'll rectify that, and then I can have uh, my arms wide open for other offerings. Mm. Uh, in other news we have the the most kind of like discourse i feel like i've seen over the last week has been about john mulaney yes specifically to do with the fact that he went on seth meyer's show and they had a very long and very kind of like frank and open discussion about the tumultuous year he has had where he um sorry uh, using drugs having been sober for a long time and then relapsed and went into rehab and then relapsed again and had to have an intervention uh, which Seth Meyers was a part of amongst, amongst uh, some of the, as, as Mulaney joked, some of the, the hottest names in uh, indie comics over 40 showing up in one apartment to try and t- save his life. Um, and then he got into a relationship with Olivia Munn and they're now expecting a child. And the tenor of the discourse around it has has been very strange to see because there seems to have been 
this idea that John Mulaney's like this like really wholesome person who is or, or he he pretended to be very wholesome and actually you know he is someone who's got like all these demons or whatever and I as someone who has like followed his career for quite a while and someone who knows like literally the first track of his first album is him talking about how he used to get blackout drunk all the time that it seems strange that that is how people perceive him mm. um and there's there's like this weird like talk of him as some sort of um betrayer there was a really weird article on vox about it which compared his situation to that of louis ck which hard nope nope, mm, nope, 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 nope. not a great comparison definitely not a great point of comparison and yeah i just find i just find the whole discussion about it very weird like the fact that he is something of become something of tabloid fodder is strange in of itself and he himself like jokes about that on in the interview but yeah like the 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 terms of the discussion around him online i have just found like extremely weird yeah i really struggled because you know the man relapsed at a really awful pressure point in human history and yeah I don't think his personal life is anyone's business and people get divorced and things don't work out. And even if people cheat on each other, that's not ideal, but it happens. And it is not the same as uh, assaulting women. Heart, like, it is absolutely not. And I know it kind of comes from probably the same route that I am defending Mulaney it's the, it's the same route that other people have that they feel so sort of betrayed by him. And I think it's because he is remarkably different in a sea of people who think they're being shocking, but are actually establishing the status quo of American, American comedy as something that's just quite vulgar and quite cruel mm-hmm. to do something that is like self-effacing. And he never did anything like deeply personal. You know, he just set the scene um it wasn't anything about like it was more about the state of being married and how people <clears throat> treat you differently than my wife said this thing oh we'll just shut her mouth and anything like that and i think you know he comes on with a suit <laughs> and people think, what you mean a man wearing a suit isn't you know exactly how i pictured him to be Parasocial relationships are really bizarre things, particularly with stand-up comedians who are the regrettably uh, kind of branch of YouTubers, for example, in that you are projecting a persona that you have crafted and it is partly an extension of yourself and also not. It can be these things all at once. You do have to extend something about what you believe. I believe <laughs> I think good stand up definitely reveals something of yourself that people wouldn't necessarily know otherwise but I think the thing is is again it's people who don't actually understand the knife edge that a lot of people who are addicts are kind of um balancing on every day like yeah mm. he'd had a really good run of sobriety but again pandemic is fucking awful and a lot of people crumble and 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 understandably so just because someone didn't respond in that way doesn't make them any weaker or someone else any stronger it just means 
people have certain responses in certain situations. And no one could have foreseen this, really, other than all the people who were telling us decades ago to really foresee this. Anyway, I think it's a very strange... I think it's disappointing rather than massively unexpected to the level of, like, possession and... um, The fandom, I guess, for Mulaney, because that he did absolutely have a part in creating a sort of, I wouldn't say wholesome, but at least very decent. Yeah, kind of jovial, nice persona. Yeah, and let's not forget, he's pretty much the only person who dropped Dave Becky as his manager in the wake of Louis C.K. So making that comparison is fucking nonsense. Like, at this point, Amy Poehler has more in common with Louis C.K. because she is still managed by Dave Becky. Um, Mm. Just putting that out there. Um, And yeah, I I really enjoyed his chat with Seth Meyers. He seems like someone who's very humbled and still early into a new run of sobriety. And I just loved the jokes that he had against himself being like, apparently I was here and asked for a job. (laughs) Because he, he understands, you know, he's in a lot of drugs at the time. But yeah, I I do. I wish him all the best. And I, you know, that he's doing stand-up again. It'll be interesting to see what he ends up doing. Um, But Mm. I don't think he actually owes anyone anything other than um, his sobriety pledge to himself. So on you, John. Kind of a strange story in that... um... It kind of it's about the revival of a project that I think everyone just would assume would have died like long ago. Um, is the news that Francis Ford Coppola is planning to make his long gestating sci-fi epic Megalopolis, which is a movie he has been trying to make since I think at least, at least the early nineties. Um, came close to making it in the early two thousands, but uh, tying this in to our discussion earlier, it was a story about kind of like conflict and rivalries extends, uh, set in uh, New York City and then 9-11 happened and it didn't seem right to kind of set uh, a story in New York in kind of like the context that he had in mind um, and then you know obviously in the years since then he's kind of semi-retired you know he made a few uh, movies in the sort of 2000s uh, but he hasn't made any a feature since Twixt which was 10 years ago and he seemed to have mainly settled into you know making wine and kind of oversee uh, producing various other projects but last year you know he he re-edited the godfather part three to create uh godfather uh the death of michael corleone which was um i watched it was pretty good uh pretty good re-editing of, of that movie still not you know perfect it still has some problems but all in all kind of feels like more uh co- cohesive than the original version and he apparently uh, basically doesn't want to have any regrets about projects that he didn't make um, before he before he dies. You know, obviously he's, he seems to be in, in fine health now, but you know he's in his eighties. And uh, Megalopolis has always been kind of the the one that got away for him. So he apparently is aiming to put a huge chunk of his own personal fortune into it uh, he reckons the movie's going to cost about 100 million dollars and he's going to put up a lot of the funding himself and also you know kind of get investors in to make up the difference he wants it to star uh oscar isaac and i think forrest whitaker as these two rivals it's meant to be like um 
like a, a story from ancient Rome but moved up to like a sci-fi future. Uh, it sounds wild and sounds kind of like a, a real kind of big, bold epic. And he's talked about how he wants it to be about trying to make the case to young people that ut- utopias are not ideas that happen. They are about discussions that people have to make them happen, mm. which, which sounds kind of fascinating in and of itself. And I really, really hope this happens. Uh, I think I've always been fascinated by Megalopolis as, a, as an idea as the this kind of like one that got away from Francis Ford Coppola. And even if I don't necessarily think his track record of recent work is great, like Tetro's amazing, but uh, some of his other recent movies haven't been particularly good. I I would just so love to see him get one final crack at making a movie and doing something kind of going out with something big and bold. Oh, for sure. Is it terrible though that the title just makes me think of the flight of the Concords. Hip, <laughs> hip hippopotamus and the rhinoceros. That is bad, isn't it? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, FFC. Don't come for me. Those are two great works of American visual media. Yeah, I think it's fine to uh, associate the two. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, it just makes me think of... Um, there was a book, I think it was called like Robotopolis or something like that, where it was like uh, some sort of like apocalyptic robot book, which was got got some buzz in like the mid 2000s and that Spielberg was always being talked about as being in talks to direct and it never happened and yeah that's what I always think of because they're both kind of super silly titles although my my understanding of Megalopolis is it's a lot more kind of heady than uh robots fighting each other which seems to be what the other book was about one of the most exciting pieces of news over the last week mainly because we can't fucking see it um, and so therefore it becomes tantalising is uh, at all. no uh, is that uh, the trailer for Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie has been playing at select theatres in LA and London over the last couple of days uh, the newly renamed Licorice Pizza previously called Soggy Bottom uh, has been playing uh, before screenings of movies including American Graffiti Point Break and Beavis and Butthead do America <laughs> So um, you you gotta love PTA. He's got a fun sense of humor about these sort of things. Just kind of a nice little surprise for audiences who have been going in not expecting it, and then they get the the trailer. And I think people have basically been instructed not to share too many details of it online um, to kind of keep the mystery around it. But from what um, people have said, you know, kind of obliquely, uh, some of the things that have leapt out is that it's a kind of a big comedy. It has a strong echoes of. Uh, Boogie Nights, which is understandable because it's also uh, set in sort of LA in the 70s. Tom Waits and Maya Rudolph are both in it, um, which hadn't previously been announced. Uh, And also, apparently, Bradley Cooper is playing John Peters, the hairdresser turned movie producer who uh, famously was in a relationship with Barbara Streisand for many, many years and was like the driving force behind her somewhat misbegotten uh, version of A Star is Born. And I think previously it was just assumed he was playing a character based on him, but apparently it's just actually John Peters. Uh, And while that is not a lot to go on, it is certainly enticing because, again, we can't fucking see it. So (laughs) we have to kind of like sit and stew while people in big real cities get to uh, (laughs) get to go and stumble across it by accident because they go and watch some old movie. But I from what I've heard about it and like the bits and pieces that have, have trickled out, 
it does sound very, very exciting, and I just would really like the trailer now, please, Paul. Yeah, I want it. Give me, even though licorice pizza actually puts my teeth on edge. Uh, I did have fun reading about the explanation for the title, which is that it's apparently like a chain of record stores that existed in LA in the 70s. Mm. Um, And it itself comes from, I think, an Abbott and Costello joke where um, they're trying to sell vinyl records and they say like the only way they could sell them is if they put cheese on it and sold it as a licorice pizza. Mm. Um, Ah, Nice, I see. Uh, but yeah, just on its face, it's a very silly title. Um, and I don't know, maybe they'll hand out cards in the lobbies just kind of explaining what the hell it means. Uh, well, because I, I imagine people seeing like licorice pizza. Um, but yeah, very excited to hopefully see that soon. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love me some Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, I particularly enjoy him. I mean, I like all of his modes, but I really like when he goes kind of like big and daffy in la in the 60s or and or 70s mm. uh, so having him take a third crack at that uh, is all right by me and also we got news that no time to die the new bond movie which is still the new bond movie despite the fact that it should have come, come out, out like, like seven times in the last year uh, is finally definitely for real absolutely coming out on october the 8th and that it will run just under three hours I this is notable mainly to me because the delays have been so numerous and it's just been such a saga trying to get that movie out that uh, I still kind of can't quite believe that it's happening. But also, I I think it's like two hours forty six. That's too long. That's too long for a Bond movie. Yeah, I just mm. and again, of course, the irony: no time, plenty of time. Insert gag here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay fine i guess i'll probably go and see it anyway because well obviously depending on what the circumstances are um but that's too that's too that's too much bond that's too much bond for anyone in one go Mm, especially because like as much as i've enjoyed daniel craig as bond and i think that there are a couple of really good uh movies featuring him they always feel like so lumpy and poorly paced. And that's when they're only like two hours or like under two hours. When you, the more that they have bloated and kind of like spread out, the less interesting they have got. And the more that you end up with like, you know, that whole thing with Skyfall where you have a whole final segment that just kind of like feels like its own self-contained little movie that they've just grafted on at the end, which is not necessarily the kind of like, best way to plot out a big blockbuster and then finally uh, the last piece of news that we have uh, there were a couple of notable deaths over the past week Uh, John Paul Belmondo the French actor who is perhaps best known uh, I guess for his work in the 60s and 70s uh, as part of the French New Wave particularly uh, for his starring role in Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless um, passed away at the age of 88 uh, kind of a legendary actor with an incredible face, uh, former boxer who had like just a just wealths of of character oozing out of every pore of him, which is like a the sort of person that you couldn't help but stare at whenever he was on screen, and who then uh, after kind of like the those kind of French New Wave years ended, sort of carved out a role for himself as an action star as a kind of proto 
uh, Tom Cruise, who would do all of his own stunts regardless of how dangerous they were and frequently injured himself, but uh, gave everyone uh, a good old time uh, as a result. And who, yeah, like was was an icon of cinema for like the better half of the last seventy years, basically. And uh, I think will be truly missed, even if you know, arguably his greatest contributions came sort of in his early years. You know, the the roles that he had working for Goddard and um, and Melville, and you know all those other, you know, they are so uh, significant and and did so much to lend i think um a humanity and an earthiness to the kind of you know goddard and all of his kind of like highfalutin <laughs> just kind of like uh intellectualizing of cinema he and gene seberg are pretty much the faces of my film a level because we studied mm. various new waves including the french and I've seen Breathless enough times in my life to possibly never want to watch it again in preparation for exams, but for JPM, I might just have to. Mm. Uh, And then, uh, tragically as well, we lost Michael K. Williams, uh, who died at the age of 54, um, seemingly of a drug overdose, so I don't know if that has been totally confirmed. Uh, At this point, he, of course, was most famous for playing Omar in The Wire, um, which was kind of his... Big break, although previously to that he had worked kind of like fairly steadily as an actor and dancer and choreographer in in the 90s. And in the years since playing Omar, he had just been, I think, just one of the most consistently exciting screen presences of the last 20 years. Like the sort of person who, whenever he showed up, regardless of how small the role was, you know, regardless of whether it was serious, whether it was comedy, he would bring everything to it. You would know that you would just not be able to take your eyes off of him and obviously the character of omar was like a a towering achievement you know this like incredibly uh distinctive character in a a familiar milieu uh who was just like always so exciting to see on screen but you know he would also show up and be in like community for a few episodes or something and just be super funny uh he was just one of those people who yeah but like every time he showed up you knew you were going to get the best out of him and uh, outside of his acting, you know, he was someone who worked a lot uh, to try and help underprivileged youth get into the arts because the you know, art had been such a important part of him um, kind of escaping from a background that included being um, a victim of, of assault, uh, sexual assault when he was a child, and who also talked very frankly about his, his struggles with addiction and tried to help other people kind of deal with it. So um, he was just kind of like a wonderful actor by all accounts, a great person. And, you know, I just think of, whenever I think of, of, of his death, I just can't help but think of it in terms of like the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. who similarly died, similar sort of age also uh, related to drugs, where you're losing someone who has done so much great work, but also thinking, you know, in mid-50s for an actor, you've got so many years of work that you won't get. You know, you, you're, you're missing out on 20 to 30 years worth of great performances that we won't get to see. Completely. It's an utter tragedy. And if you haven't already, I thoroughly recommend seeking out Wendell Pierce, being able to give him his flowers whilst he's alive, so to speak, because I think he just sums him up absolutely brilliantly. And, yeah, the... Um, the world stage is smaller without him. 
Mm. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, in terms that you know, people were sharing so much, so many reminiscences of him and so many uh, bits of his work. I can't recommend enough. There was a clip doing the rounds of him at DMX's memorial last year or earlier this year, where he kind of went on stage as DMX, kind of doing the I think the beginning of the Rough Riders anthem or X Gun Give It To You. And it was just like so electric and you could totally see him embodying the energy of someone else who like, you know, burned brightly and too uh, and too soon. Um, yeah, that was just like an amazing clip that, that really summarized me what a great presence he was and what, we're, what we've all lost. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? So coming back to where we began our episode, um, it's an article on Defector by Brian Feldman mm. called At the Turtle Club in the Shadow of 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> you, this you is know a great article. article. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. And it just made me realise that as, as kind of as light and humorous and ridiculous it seems on the top i actually think it is a really amazing case study of the misinformation the kind of will of something to have happened print the myth not the truth etc etc where it was reported that the master of disguise the uh almost universally panned dana carvey movie um, the the law went that um, they were filming in New York on 9-11 and they stopped or it's disrupted filming in some way. And Brian Feldman goes on the hunt to be like, yeah, but this just doesn't add up like in terms of the timeline and goes on this like little warren of investigation, but along the way manages to pull in all of these different points and remembrances. And I found it like by turns a hilarious and really touching and unsettling read um mm. so yeah you definitely need to read it yeah uh, shout out to defector who just this week celebrated their like first year as an active site uh, they do good work there and uh yeah they are if you can afford to subscribe to them uh, you'll get your money's worth because they're they're doing great stuff there uh i am going to recommend a book that i read this week called from the streets of shaolin the wu-tang saga by sh fernando jr which is an incredibly comprehensive book about the history of uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, the, of course, uh, iconic, seminal uh, hip-hop collective out of Staten Island. And uh, I've been a fan of the Wu-Tang Clan since I was you know, sort of 15, 16 years old, um, maybe even earlier, whenever Gravel Pit came out, because I remember just like being really fascinated by the video for Gravel Pit and uh, mistakenly assuming it was actually related to the Flintstones <laughs> because the whole video takes place and it's all meant to be like... Um, like the Flintstones and I assumed it was related to like Viva La Rock Vegas or something but it absolutely is not if you look at the lyrics but uh, yeah I, I've been a fan of theirs for years but like I've never like really kind of like dug into the backstory of them I've always like really enjoyed the mystique around them of this group of like nine MCs who just kind of like conquered the world um, but uh, the book does a really good job I think of maintaining that mystique you know making them out to be these kind of like larger than life characters who you know kind of went from independently selling their first single 
uh, you know, on the streets of New York to having a number one album in the course of like five years. And in between that time, put out six of the best albums in the history of rap. And, uh, you know, at the same time, digging into their backgrounds, you know, how, how their childhoods growing up uh, as hip hop was kind of rising in New York, as it was kind of taking form and starting to impinge upon, uh, starting to kind of like break into the popular culture, but also the crack em- epidemic and digging into that. So there's lots of really good biographical and cultural history in there. And then the middle section of the book, which is, is far away, my favorite is like just an in-depth look at those seven albums between Enter the 36 Chambers and uh, Wu-Tang Forever, which you know, really kind of like digs down into their inspirations, the, hip, uh, the, the Kung Fu movies they were watching, the samples they used, you know, their life experiences that inform all of these songs. Uh, and then the last chap, the last couple of chapters are like, oh yeah, and here's what happened in the 23 years since then. And you're kind of acknowledging that uh, the Wu-Tang Clan were like absolutely great for like four years and then afterwards have kind of been hit or miss. But uh, I think it's just like a really exhilarating, fun, entertaining look at this very singular group of talents uh, that really does a great job of contextualizing why their music meant so much to so many people and continues to mean so much to so many people and the, the way in which they were kind of like innovators and great artists. So that is the, From the Streets of Shaolin by S.H. Fernando Jr. Uh, it, if you're a fan of the Wu-Tang Clan, it's an absolute essential read. If you're not, it's just an absolutely great introduction to them and, and kind of can point you into a lot of really fun avenues for all the work they've done over the course of the last uh, 24 years. Or got like way more, way longer than that the last thirty years. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Fan, Spotify, all the user places, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.